Anyway, um, before we begin the message here, just want to have a quick introduction. Being a part of Renovation Church has never been, will never be, about the man. Meaning, uh, there's one dude that we all love to hear, to preach, uh, the personality that we're following, um, the preacher, the pastor. That's not us. That's, we're not saying anything negative about anybody else. We're just saying that's not been our heart. That's not been our philosophy. We have three elders here that share the preaching, and we do that deliberately. And uh, what we get with that is a full range of perspectives and giftedness that the body of Christ is able to glean from, right? We don't build this vision. This vision has never been built on one individual, one personality, but really on teamwork. The word that we've always used is interdependency, right? A reflection of the God that we worship, Father, Son, Spirit, that exists eternally in interdependent community and loving relationship. Okay, so that's been our heartbeat from day one. It will continue to be our heartbeat. But alongside of that, as we strategically work together as a team, right, our vision is to see multiple churches planted, Multiple contexts where people can hear the gospel and respond to it in repentance and faith. And so while you look at this congregation, we're looking at the whole community of the northern suburbs. 90,000 people, five zip codes. We're saying, yeah, we're taking responsibility for every community across the northern part of that 90 corridor. Yeah, us, our little congregation. So it's our hope that over time that we'll be able to identify and raise up more elders, more preachers, more teachers over time, right? And along the way, we're going to have opportunity to see uh, people grow in this and experiment with this and try this, and we're going to hear from even more people than our current elders at times as the eldership of this church sees fit. Again, for the building up of the body, right? For the raising up of new leaders, right? Because... That's what really the task of the church is all about, making disciples, raising up leaders so that every man, woman, and child has a repeated opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel, all because this is the way in which God is glorified. So, all that being said, over the last year or two, you've seen some other people. We have church partners come in and preach. We've had Dan Williams, Bernie Elliott, uh, Jordan Cinziano. Over the year, we've had multiple people come and speak into our congregation. And today we have someone inside the church that we're calling to preach, uh, someone that's shown interest and desire, someone who feels called. And so it's been nothing but a privilege to see that desire grow and to watch him really submit to us in this process. He's worked diligently on this. This is something that he has been working on and planning uh, on for, for quite some time. And so we're excited to welcome the one and only Alex Morris as he comes to preach. So, Alex, come forward. We're excited to have you come preach in our parable series from Luke chapter 16. And uh, I would love to pray for him, and I would love for you to pray with me. Can we do that? Sure. Let's do it. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We are trusting that you have uh, worked in this man's heart that he will rightly handle the word of truth as he is called. 
We're grateful for his diligence and his preparation. And uh, what an exciting thing to see more people uh, making themselves available to this unique task of preaching your word. May he have confidence in what you have said. May he recognize that he's not performing for anyone. Everyone in this room loves him. Everyone in this room accepts him. Everyone in this room uh, is, 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 is uh, uh, just behind him. And I pray that this would just simply be about him making himself available to look at the scriptures and point some things out. And may we be more concerned about what the word says and how we're to respond and less concerned about this, that, and the other thing with the preacher. So we ask that you give him peace and confidence, and uh, may he just speak with clarity and boldness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Welcome, Mr. Morris. Thank you. All right. This on? We good? Okay. I want to just echo what Mike said. Uh, God has really blessed the pulpit of this church, hasn't he? God has really brought some excellent, passionate communicators of his word here. I'm very grateful to just be given a chance to be a voice in that chorus of proclaiming God's word. Hang on a second. Got to get my technological empire set up. Okay. All right, so uh, has anybody ever heard of a man named Bernie Madoff? Does that name ring a bell? If you haven't, Bernie Madoff is currently serving a 150-year prison sentence on 11 counts of various financial-related felonies. Anybody ever heard of a man named Michael Milken? Does that name ring a bell for anybody? Michael Milken was sentenced to 10 years in prison for racketeering and securities fraud, and he is believed to have been the inspiration for the Michael Douglas character Gordon Gecko in the Wall Street movies. Now, if Renovation Church ever wanted to host a seminar on biblical and practical principles of financial stewardship, these are not the guys we would get to be our keynote speakers, right? I mean, Mike and Jerry can check me on this, but I'm pretty sure we would try to get somebody a little bit more of, oh, what's the word, legit? (laughs) You know, we might not be able to afford Dave Ramsey, but maybe somebody from Crown Financial or something, but as a church, we would never hold up a couple of financial felons as role models for how to steward our finances. Now, when you look at the parables of Jesus, you don't have to look very far to figure out that Jesus had a way of using some pretty unsavory characters to get his points across in his parables. You know, a Samaritan, a tax collector, a widow, a corrupt judge, a rebellious son. These are not exactly the elite of society. And in the parable we're going to be looking at today, the main character, the one who was commended by Jesus is a guy who actually did things that, in this country, pretty much would have landed him in prison right alongside these guys. So, the parable we're looking at today, Luke 16, the parable of the embezzler. Um, This parable has to do with money, as you can probably imagine. And um, this can be a little bit of a minefield for preachers, you know. I mean, on the one hand, the biblical writers spilled a lot of inspired ink on the topic of money. So anybody who wants to preach the scriptures, you're going to run into the topic sooner or later. But we also don't want to be like these prosperity people where, like, money's the only thing they ever talk about. So, you know, why, why so much about money in the scriptures? Why, why does it come up so much? Well, I mean, if you think about it, money is kind of a universal language, isn't it? I mean, everybody everywhere pretty much understands what money is and what it's for. There's a lot of things people don't understand and obscure topics and whatever, but pretty much everybody knows what money is, what it's used for. And that's probably why Jesus so often uses an illustration for other stuff. 
But um, the thing about money is this. Even though money, like marriage, is a topic that only has to do with this life and not the rest of eternity, it might surprise you to know that our view of money, like our view of marriage, says a lot about our view of God. Would it surprise you to know that having a wrong view of money is actually a really strong indication of having a wrong view of God? The parable we're going to talk about today is going to get into that. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can find Luke 16. It'll be up on the screen as we go through it. And uh, we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses, the parable of the dishonest manager, the parable of the embezzler, however you want to look at it. Now, if you've ever read this passage of Scripture, the first time you read it, it might have seemed a little bit hard to understand. There's some stuff in there that sounds a little bit unusual. And, um, but one of the keys to understanding the parables, especially the story parables, is the punchline. You know, parables are not just clever stories with a moral attached to it like Aesop's fables. The parables were stories that were intended to get a reaction out of people. They were stories with a punchline that ended with a zinger that was supposed to cut right to our hearts and sort of bring these sinful attitudes to the surface. Like, for example, when Peter asked Jesus... Lord, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Which is basically asking, Lord, when do I not have to forgive my brother? Jesus could have just told Peter, Peter, look, you have a really unforgiving spirit and a hard heart, and you really need to soften your heart and humble yourself on that. Instead, Jesus told Peter this story about two servants, and one servant owed this king a huge debt that was like more money than King Solomon ever had. He gets forgiven the whole debt, finds out that somebody else owes him a bag of coins, and won't even give him enough time to repay, throws him in jail, and by the end of the parable, you're kind of mad at the guy, right? You're like, what? This guy was forgiven Solomon's treasure house, and he won't let his buddy pay back a bag of coins? What's up with that? And then when the king finds out and throws the servant in jail next to the other guy, you're ready to cheer, like, yay, justice. But what's the punchline? So shall my father do to you and me if we don't forgive. In other words, we're that guy. Peter's that guy. And so that's the way parables work a lot of the times. You know, instead of Jesus just telling people what their problem was, he tells them a story to kind of help them figure out for themselves and bring this sinful attitude in their heart to the surface. So the parable we're looking at today in Luke 16 is kind of like that. Now, this parable is actually a continuation of what we talked about last week, the prodigal son and the lost sheep and the lost coin. It's the same scene. It's the same discussion with the same group of people. There's really no break in the text. And so... The parables last week were kind of aimed at the Pharisees' self-righteousness. You know, like again, instead of telling the Pharisees how self-righteous they are, he tells them this story about lost son and the lost son's older brother. And so these parables today are going to kind of pick up on that and get at another as sinful attitude that's related to self-righteousness, but not the same. And so, so we're going to take a look at that. And, uh, but the one thing we have to remember is this. You know, a lot of times when we read the New Testament, you know, we talk about you know, the Pharisees. And we always think of the Pharisees as somebody else. But, you know, in the prodigal son parable, before we knew Christ, we were all the younger brother, right? We were the lost one. We were way far away from God. And God got through to us somehow. And we came to our senses and repented and came back to God. But after we've known Christ a while, we can get like the older brother. We can get like the Pharisees, hard-hearted and self-righteous. And the minute we start thinking to ourselves, oh, Lord, thank you that I'm not like these self-righteous Pharisees over here. We're pretty much halfway there. So as we look at this parable today, keep in mind that it's not necessarily written to somebody else. uh, There's something in it for us. So let's take a look at the text. Luke 16, verses 1 and 2. 
He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So there's this certain rich man, and he has this manager, this bookkeeper, sort of overseeing his affairs. He gets some reports coming back that this guy's doing a bad job wasting his money, and he believes them. So he calls the manager into his office and says to him, in the words of a one-time reality star, You're fired! (laughs) Verse 3, the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. So this, uh, this manager in the story is described as what my parents' generation referred to as a pencil pusher. You know, kind of a, like a tech nerd, a real shrimpy kind of weakling who just sits at a desk all day long as opposed to a big, strong, physical specimen who does hard labor. Verse 4, the manager still speaking says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. <clears throat> Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said to him, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, if you have an older translation of scripture, it might say a hundred baths of oil. If you're wondering how much that is, it's about, from what I've read, it's about 875 gallons of olive oil. Now, a pint of olive oil is pretty expensive in the grocery store, right? 875 gallons of olive oil is a pretty massive amount of valuable stuff. And if you have an older translation, it might say a hundred cores of wheat, and that's equal to about somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 bushels of a really valuable foodstuff. So it sounds like the manager was like targeting the people who owed his master the most and saying, okay, I'll find the people who owe my manager the most and I'll cut down their debts so that they'll take care of me later on. Now, if you're following this so far, what's the catch? What's the obvious question? Say, okay, Mr. Dishonest Manager, that's all very clever and everything, but what do you think is going to happen when the big boss man finds out? How's that conversation going to go? Probably something like this. The master summoned the dishonest manager and said to him, you think you can steal from me? You better fix my books or else come up with the goods yourself, you little twerp, or I'll throw your scrawny little behind in prison till the next jubilee year. <laughs> okay, the Bible doesn't say that, but... Let me just ask, has that ever happened to anyone? Has anybody like, who owns a business or, or boss of somebody, have you ever been, had people steal money from you? All right, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, you probably didn't react well when that happened. Okay, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that. And, you know, there's no reason to think that this wealthy person is going to react well to being cheated and robbed by this manager that he's just fired. What does the text actually say? Verse 8, it says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. I mean, it almost sounds like he kind of laughed about it. You know, like he said, he did what? You know, that's actually pretty creative. That's good. Very resourceful. Now, the parable... Oops. The parable doesn't exactly end. You know, we never find out if the dishonest manager's plan actually worked. Uh, Jesus instead, he kind of moves into this other teaching, starting at the end of um, uh, verse 8. He says, 
For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now again, this might sound a little strange the first time you hear it. I mean, it almost sounds like Jesus is telling his followers to cheat and lie to get into heaven someday. Well, obviously it's not saying that. Um, as far as I can tell, what, Je- what, that, what this means is this. The dishonest manager's plan was, all right, if I take care of these people monetarily, they'll receive me into their earthly homes. In other words, they'll give me a material blessing if I do this for them. And so what Jesus is, seems to be saying is, instead of doing that, use money in order to be received into eternal dwellings, meaning in order to receive a spiritual blessing. Don't just use money to receive an earthly material blessing. Use money to receive a spiritual blessing and to generate a spiritual blessing. Jesus is not calling us to imitate the dishonest manager's violation of the Eighth and Ninth Commandments, stealing and lying. He's only telling us to imitate the dishonest manager's shrewdness, except not just to receive material blessings for ourselves, but to generate spiritual blessings for other people. And starting in verse 10, Jesus starts to move into this sort of like Proverbs stuff. And starting in verse 10, Jesus says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So that's just kind of general. Verse 10 is kind of a general thing that really applies to anything. You know, if someone's faithful in something small, they're a lot more likely to be faithful in something big. I mean, faithfulness is something that's qualitative, not quantitative. If somebody can do good with something small, then they're ready to be entrusted with something bigger. If somebody can't handle something small, there's no reason to give them something bigger. Now, as it relates to this passage, verse 11, Jesus says, if you haven't been faithful with money, who should entrust you with true riches? In other words, if somebody can't handle something simple like caring for their checkbook and their personal budget, Why should that person be entrusted with something big and complicated like in being entrusted with the souls of men and women and children in a ministry? Now, if someone someone can't oversee their money, why should that person be allowed to oversee the discipleship and the growth and development of men and women and children? You know? If someone can't handle their finances, why should they be given, you know, leadership of a missional community? Or why should that person be made a My Circle Catalyst? Why should that person be allowed to work in kids' ministry, they can't handle something simple like managing their own money. And then verse 12 is a lesson that all of us who are parents, if we haven't already, are going to try to teach our kids at some point, which is, if you can't be faithful with somebody else's stuff, who's going to give you your own stuff, you know? You know, if my kids can't be faithful with a device that belongs to me, why should I give them their own device? Or, 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 you know, so... You know, if, if, my, if my kids can't be faithful when they're old enough to drive my car, why should they get their own car? You know, if, if you can't be faithful with somebody else's stuff, why should anybody give you your own stuff? <clears throat> then verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now this is just basically a kind of common sense thing. You know, no servant can have two. If a servant wants to have two masters... Eventually, both masters are going to call upon that servant at the same time, and he's going to have to make a choice, and one of the masters is going to be unhappy about it. And this, by the way, is one of the many reasons why Christians are commanded to not marry or get into those kind of relationships with non-Christians. If a Christian whose master is God is in a relationship with someone whose master is not God, eventually there's going to be a conflict between the two masters, 
and one of the masters is going to be unhappy about it. Now, if you're still tracking with me after all this, you might be sort of wondering, all right, where in the world is this plane going to land? <laughs> oh, yeah, we started out telling the story about a dishonest bookkeeper who cheats his boss. Then there's something about using money to receive material blessings. Then there's this proverb stuff about being faithful in a little, faithful in much, and about not having two masters. Where's this plane going to land exactly? Well, the answer to that is the end of verse 13. You cannot serve God and money. Okay, the plane has now landed. Rubber meat road. Okay. This seems to be that the punchline that this has all been building towards. You cannot serve God and money. Now notice the way that this statement is expressed. It's not a command. Thou shalt not serve God and money. You know, it's not a warning. You you really shouldn't serve God and money or something bad's going to happen. It's not even a piece of advice. Your life will be a lot better if you don't serve God and money. It's a statement of fact. You cannot serve God and money. If you think you can serve God and money, then you're wrong. Sorry. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, says that you can't. It's been tried. Okay? You cannot serve God and money. If anyone thinks they can, they have an incorrect view of reality. Now, what is this punchline? What does this all have to do with the rest of the passage? Well, a few verses earlier when it talked about being faithful with money or unfaithful with money, what does that mean exactly, to be faithful with money? Well, among other things, being faithful with money means being able to have money and use money without idolizing money. At the beginning of the passage in the story, the dishonest manager was portrayed as incompetent and dishonest, but not as an idolater. The text doesn't say that the dishonest manager idolized money or was a slave to money. It does say that he made money his servant to further his own ends, but it doesn't say that he was an idolater of money. Now, the very next verse after the parable ends says that the Pharisees who were listening to all this scoffed at what Jesus was saying, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. And this, so this seems to be the attitude that Jesus is trying to get at here. Again, last week it was self-righteousness. This story and this teaching that follows it appears to be driving at this sinful attitude of the love of money. And love of money actually gets a pretty fair amount of attention in the New Testament. You know, if you look at the Bible, there's certain things that we're commanded to love, and there's certain things that we're commanded to not love, right? What are we commanded to love? God, our neighbor, people who don't know Jesus, people in the church, our enemies, basically God and people, right? That's what we're called to love, God and people. What are we commanded to not love? Sin, evil, worldliness, and also money. Now, why would money be so singled out as something we're supposed to not love? I think part of the answer to that comes in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, which, um, which says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now, if you haven't heard, this verse gets misquoted a lot. Some people say, oh, money is the root of all evils. No, money is not the root of anything. Money is a tool that is either used for good or evil. Money itself isn't evil. Money is just a tool. Look, A chainsaw is not good or evil. A chainsaw is a tool. You can use a chainsaw to build a house, or you can use a chainsaw to hack somebody's limbs off. The chainsaw itself isn't evil. 
but the use of a chainsaw is good or evil. And money itself isn't good or evil, but the use of money is good or evil. On the other hand, the love of money, this passage says, love of money is not only evil, but love of money is a root that causes other kinds of evil to flourish. If you have a root in your garden, what happens if you plant, if you feed and water a root? Plants grow. Plants flourish. If you have the love of money in your heart and you nurture it and feed it, all kinds of other evil will grow and flourish too. Like self-righteousness, for instance. You think it's an accident that this parable comes right after a whole set of parables about self-righteousness? Of course not. What's the attitude that people who have a lot of money usually have about it? This is my money. I earned it. I worked hard for this. I deserve to have it. I'm good at what I do. It's mine. I earned it. Self-righteousness, right? Love of money causes all kinds of other evil to flourish along with it. (coughs) Excuse me. But of course, what does the Bible teach? What do we have that we did not receive? So, what does this all have to do with us? Well, I think one of the big takeaways from this parable is that we need to be able to have money and use money without idolizing money. You know, there's nothing wrong with Christians having money. I mean, look, the early church, the early church all met in people's houses. That means somebody in the Christian community needed to own a house that was big enough for the congregation to meet in. Whether it was Philemon the Colossian or Lydia the Philippian or whoever it was, at least a few of the Christians in any church had to be rich enough to own the houses they met in. So there's nothing particularly wrong with Christians having money. The problem is with Christians idolizing money. Like the text says, we can only have one master. If money is our master, then God is not, and that can't happen. So how are we supposed to know? How are we supposed to know whether money is our master or we are the master of our money? You know, how are we supposed to know whether we're serving money or money is serving us? How are we supposed to know whether money is a tool in our hands or an idol in our hearts? Well, I think uh, Mike said a few weeks ago, the best way to determine somebody's priorities is to look at their bank statements. <clears throat> you know, Jesus said that wherever our treasure is, that's where our heart is. If all of our treasure is invested in ourselves, then that's where our heart is, in ourselves. If our, treasure, <clears throat> if our treasure is invested in blessing other people for God's glory, then that's where our heart's going to be. You know, one of the very few people in Scripture who was ever specifically called a fool was the guy who hoarded money, right, in Luke 12, and just invested it all in himself. <clears throat> uh, a couple of weeks, um, sorry. Um, so again, we need to be able to have money and use money without idolizing money. Now, another big takeaway from this passage is that we need, to, we need to find ways to creatively use money in order to spiritually bless others. And again, you could ask, you know, why bother telling this story about the crooked bookkeeper? Why couldn't you just tell his people, look, <clears throat> use money any way you can, just don't get, let yourself get enslaved to it. Jesus could have just told us that. But why bother telling the story about this dishonest manager? I think one of the reasons was to to kind of help us figure out for ourselves by setting up a, a how much more. Jesus did that a lot, especially in his parables. He set up a how much more. Like, like if a corrupt judge, in Luke 18, if a corrupt judge can be persuaded to answer the request of a widow with no legal standing, just by sheer persistence and saying, give me justice, give me justice, 
how much more will God answer the prayers of his own children? And in this parable, you know, if an incompetent, dishonest child of the age can creatively use money to materially bless himself, how much more can we, who are God's people, creatively use money to spiritually bless others? All right. If a couple of financial crooks like Bernie Madoff and Michael Milken can creatively multiply wealth for themselves illegally, how much more can we, who are God's people, creatively multiply spiritual blessings in a way that honors God? You know, a couple weeks ago, the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the CNSMC missional community got together on a Tuesday, and we all got together, and we pooled a little bit of our money, and we took a walk down to Big Dip, the ice cream place on Route 11, and we went to the employees, and we said, okay, look, here's some money for the next hour or so. Anyone who comes up to the stand to buy ice cream, we'll pay for it. Just give them their ice cream, tell them it's paid for, tell them who we are. Okay, great. The Big Dip employees loved it. <clears throat> they got a lot more business that night and a lot more tips because once word got around, more people started coming, you know, social media and everything. Since people didn't have to buy their own ice cream, they were more likely to give a tip. So tips went up, business went up. <clears throat> the people who were coming to the stand to buy ice cream anyway, they were blessed because they didn't have to buy it. Those of us who were there from the MC got to have some great conversations, which blessed people. And we got to keep building just sort of the collective testimony of Renovation Church. I mean, that was pretty much a win all the way around. Small, creative use of money to multiply spiritual blessings for other people. You know, nobody's saying give every penny to the church. That's not what we're saying. Just find ways to creatively use money to bless other people spiritually. Now, the Bible makes it sound pretty close to impossible to serve God without getting entangled in the love of money. You know, Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And by the way, that means exactly what it says. You know, some people have tried to twist that into something else. No, that means just what it says. It's easier for a camel to get through a needle eye than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the good news is that what is impossible with men is possible with God. And a few chapters later in this very gospel, in Luke 19, this notorious thief and lover of money named Zacchaeus is going to have a transforming encounter with Jesus. And he's going to come away from that encounter, not only as a keeper of the Eighth Commandment, not stealing, but as a generous giver and all-around non-lover of money. And only God can make that happen. Okay, that's not something we can figure out on our own, how to be a non-lover of money. Only an encounter with God can make that happen. And for those of us who have known Christ for a while, you know, again... Only God can continue transforming us so that we don't slide into this self-righteousness and hard-heartedness that characterize the Pharisees. Remember, the minute we start thinking, Oh Lord, thank you that I'm not like these self-righteous, money-loving Pharisees, we're already there. Only God can keep us from sliding down that road. And so, these parables are designed to bring, to kind of shine a light into our hearts and bring these sinful attitudes to the surface. But not just so that we can be aware of them. It's so that we can take these sinful attitudes and bring them back to God in a spirit of repentance and saying, Lord, change my heart. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all the different ways you communicate with us, and thank you for how you show us who we are and who you are and how we need to change. I pray for all of us here, myself and everybody here, that, uh, that we would not be lovers of money, that we would be soul servants of you. You would continue changing our hearts, transforming our hearts, making us more into your image, because only you can do that. We can't change ourselves. Only you can do that kind of work. <clears throat> we praise you for your word and everything that your word has for us. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and respond to that message, um, the song that we uh, are going to